Before we start chapter 13, I would like to give an introduction to chapter 13. Um, If you really want to understand something, no, if you really want to understand something, is it better to look at a classic, straightforward example of the thing you want to understand or an extreme version of the thing you want to understand? Extreme, Extreme, correct, why? Right. In other words, because the extreme is going to show you like to what extent it is or it's on the boundary between whatever it is, you're, it, whatever it is versus something else. Okay. Um, you can see this, for instance, in, in the laws of Shabbos. Okay. The one, so in the laws of Shabbos, we have 39 malachas, 39 prohibited activities that the Torah forbids us from doing on Shabbos. Now, each of these is a specific activity, such as cooking or plowing. Okay. Um, if you really want to understand what any of these malachas truly are, though, you should not look at what is called the, the, the av malach, or the father act, but you should look at what are called the toldes, the children, or offspring acts, meaning other acts that fit into the category, but are not necessarily the classic example. So, for instance, um, are you allowed on Shabbos to take wax, like a wax candle, and put it close to a fire such that it melts? No. No. Why not? Is it changing its form? And so which one of the 39 malachas are you doing? Mm-hmm. You don't know. You're Sounds cooking. Like You're cooking. That's Bishel? That is Bishel. That is a classic. That is, that is, that is, that is an example of Bishel. Now, I, I, why is that cooking? Is it changing its form? Via? Right? Now, if I only give you examples of baking and cooking food, right, you wouldn't know that, right? Okay? Or another example, um, if you have a barrel, okay, um, are you allowed to make a hole in the barrel to get out the contents? You know, like, so you have a barrel and you want to put, like, a little, you know, a little hole so that you can, like put a spigot so the wine can come out or whatever. Do I do that on Shabbos? No, the answer is no. Which one of the 39 prohibited things is that? Making a clee. What? Making a clee. Making a clee. But that's not one of them, actually. That's how it's been. It's actually what's called as makabipatish, which is the finer hammer blow. But that is understood into many different things, such as making a vessel or making any, adding a useful feature to a vessel, such as adding a hole that allows something to be used as a spigot. Okay? So you only really understand any of the 39 malachas if you examine all of their toes, all their offsprings, and then you kind of try and create a conception that unifies them. Does that make sense? So we've discussed this kind of classic ideal Bainini. They engage in this, uh, you know, this, this prayer with deep contemplation. They come to a, a love of Hashem. That love of Hashem, although it fades after prayer, it leaves an impression on their mind and their heart. The mind, they have a clarity of their mind. The heart, there is a, a, an awakening of the natural love every Jew has. And because the mind rules the heart, and godliness is like light, and klipa is like darkness, they're able to live a life free of any klipa-motivated behavior, whether it's a thought, speech, or action, right? That was the thing we discussed. Um, but there's more variety and more range of the Baini. And to fully understand the Baini, we need to look at some of the extremes that the Baini could reach, some of the low points that a person could reach while still being a Baini, and some of the high points the person reaches, and still they are a Baini. Okay, so we want to kind of see what is the real boundary between the Bainini and the Rasha? What is the real boundary between the Bainini and the Tzaddik? And then we can kind of come together and really try to understand what we really mean by a Bainini. Okay? And that's really what chapter 13 does differently than chapter 12. So as chapter 12 gave us kind of the 
quintessential example of the Bainani, in chapter 13, we're going to explore all of its extremities, all of its edges, the boundaries of what a Bainani is and a Bainani is not. One other introduction point that I'd like to make is that, um, as I've emphasized many times in the class, the Alter Rebbe has described things. Um, not You guys were not here when we started chapter one, but since chapter one, the Alter Rebbe has simply described this is the way this is. This is what a soul is. This is what an animal soul is. This is what intellect is. This is what emotions is. This is what Torah, this is what mitzvah is. This is what a sin is. This is what um, permitted things are. This is what a Bainani is. This is what a Russia is. Um, but there's never been anything that is really normative in the sense that you should do this, you should not do that. Right? That is going to change in chapter 14. But the only way that that can change, the only way the altar can start saying you should do this, you shouldn't do that, is because the person has a great clarity about what a tzaddik is, what a bainani is, what a tzaddik is, what a bainani isn't, what a rush is, what a rush is not. Okay? And so, in a sense, chapter 13 can be understood as a, as a critical chapter because it's only by really fully examining all of the extremes, the extreme highs, the extreme lows of a bainani, do we fully understand when the Altar says we should strive to be a Bainini, what that would mean, what that would not mean? Okay? So this it can be seen as both a, a, a elaboration on the central idea in chapter 12, but also as an introduction or, or setting the basis for learning chapter 14. Okay, we're going to get started. Now, um, there's a lot of information in this chapter, a lot, a lot of information. Now, what I would like to do is I want to deal with the first three paragraphs in the English, okay? Um, and I want to get through all three of them today on a very superficial level, so we understand the flow of the argument, the flow of the idea. So what I'm going to be focusing on is not any of the precise meanings of any words, but the general idea that he's saying, okay? Um, and then we're going to go back and we're going to examine it in greater detail. Subsequent classes, not this week, because tomorrow's question and answers. Okay. Okay. If there are no questions, we'll get started. If there are questions, you can ask them now. All right. Therewith will be understood the commentary of our sages. Now, um, does anyone know what therewith actually means? Okay, so I only know what therewith means because I know the Hebrew when I'm working. So I know, what, I know what the Hebrew means. And with this? Yes, and with this. Meaning with what we've said in chapter 12, we will understand the commentary of our sages. So the idea is that something from what we've previously learned in chapter 12 about the Bainini will help us understand the following comment of our sages. So the goal here is to understand a few things. One, what did the sages say? Two, how it's being explained. And three, how that explanation is rooted in what we learned in chapter 12. Okay, that is the goal for today. If we finish all of that, we can do more, but that's what I would like to get through today. One, what did the sages say? Two, what do you mean, what the oh. there's a comment okay. of the sa- commentary of the sages. We want to know what is that commentary? What does, it ha- what, what does it mean, right? And why is that understanding of it based on what we learned previously in chapter 12, right? Because that's what he says. Therewith, or with this that we learned in chapter 12, will be understood the commentary of our sages. So what is the commentary? How is it understood? And how is that understanding based on chapter 12? Three points. So first, what did they say? That the intermediate people are judged by both, meaning their good and evil inclinations. For it is written, when he stands at the right side of the destitute to deliver him from the judges of his soul. Okay, so the sages have a discussion um, in the Talmud about a tzaddik, a rasha, and a benani. And they say defining characteristics of a tzaddik, defining characteristics of a rasha, and defining characteristics of a benani, which the altar actually quotes in chapter 12, sorry, in chapter 1 of Tanya. The defining characteristic of the tzaddik is that yetzer toiv shayftar, their good inclination judges them. 
The Rasha's defining characteristic is Yetzahara Shaifta, that the evil inclination judges them. The defining characteristic of a Bainini is Zevizesh Shaifta, both of them, meaning both the good and evil inclination judge them. And there's a proof text that is brought. The proof text is this verse um, from Judges. And the idea here is that he stands to the right of the destitute to deliver him the judges of his soul. Who is the he? That should be obvious, it's capitalized. Who is the he? Hashem. Hashem. Who is the destitute? The person. Which person? No. The Bainini. It's interesting why we're calling the Bainini destitute, but we're not going to focus on that right now. Because remember, this is a proof text for the commentary of the sages on the Bainini. So the destitute person here must be understood to be a Bainini. He's not the Rasha. He's also not the Tzaddik. And where does Hashem stand relative to the Bainini? To his right. And he's there to deliver him from the judges of his soul. So the idea here is how many judges does this Bainini have, this destitute person have? Two. Two. And so that's the idea the sage is saying, that this destitute person is being judged by both his good and evil inclination, and as such, he needs some assistance, assistance provided to him by Hashem, and assistance happens to be by Hashem standing on his right side. All that will be explained. So the takeaway from this is, is that a Bainini is distinct from both a tzaddik and a rosh in that he is judged by both his good inclination, his yetzer tov, and his evil inclination, his yetzer hara. And that actually, as the verse implies, creates a problem that Hashem needs to help him with by standing on his right side, which we'll get to later. Okay. Note that they did not say ruled by both, God forbid, because where the evil nature gains any control and dominion over the small city, again, the small city is the analogy for the body, even though but temporarily, one is deemed at such times wicked, or a rasha. The evil nature, the bane, however, is... Okay, so the, so the first thing that Altarb is pointing out is as follows. The term judge is not synonymous with the term rules. Okay, what is the difference between a judge and a ruler? Well, both have authority. Both have authority. There's a difference on the authority. No. So the algebra is going to explain. Um, I'll preface it before I read it because I want to actually talk about something before we read inside. But a judge is someone whose authority um, is not necessarily... just their own personal. You could have, for instance, multiple judges, right? You have a panel of judges, right? The Supreme Court has nine judges in the United States, right? You have three judges. They'll sit in a Jewish court in a basin with a monetary dispute. So if a judge has a particular opinion, that does not necessarily translate into the final ruling, right? The final ruling is based on the total grouping of judges. Whereas a ruler, they just they make decisions and that's what, that's what the case is. That's what the facts are, okay? So, for instance, um, a king, if they had a king decide, a real king, king with the, you know, they decide, well then, that's what people have to do. If the, judge just, if the judge decides that such is the right thing, that can be counterbalanced by the fact that another judge in the same case disagrees with them. So what the Al-Tarebbe is pointing out is that we are not describing as the Bainini as being ruled by both inclinations. Okay? What, what's the issue? Because what is rulership means that you have actual authority, you can make things happen. If you were ruled by your evil inclination, that would translate into doing a behavior that is sinful. And what have we previously established in chapter 12? A Bainini does not sin, ever. Okay, so from our understanding that a Baini does not sin, we can understand why the sages did not say that a Baini is ruled by both inclinations, but they preferred the term 
judged by both inclinations, okay? So if I'm gonna make this very, very simple. A person who is ruled by both inclination would be a tzaddik, a rasha, or a benini. Who's ruled by both inclinations. A rasha. Sometimes the, the, the godly soul is able to exert control over the person. Sometimes the animal soul exerts control over the person. That is a rasha. If you're pretty standard rasha. Right? So the use of the term judge is telling us that this, is, this person is not being ruled by both. And that fits with our understanding of a bainini. That a bainini is, in fact, their behavior is always on the side of holiness. Okay. On the other hand, okay, why is this description of being judged by both inclinations not a good description of a tzaddik? For, correct, right? right. In other words, for the tzaddik, right, the animal soul is not even able to act as a judge. Right? So it's like this. For the, the right, this description that you're being judged by both is a fitting description of the baini, given that we've established that the baini, on the one hand, when it comes to his thought, speech, and action, never sins. On the other hand, we've established that the baini still hears, still is aware of the desires of the animal soul. So the animal soul is, is given voice on the one hand, but not authority on the other hand. Well, what would be an appropriate analogy for someone who has a voice but has no authority? There's a judge. A judge sitting on a panel of judges he has voice. His opinion does count for something, but has no independent authority. And so the description of the Benini in chapter 12 helps us understand why the sages describe the Bainini specifically this way, having the animal soul being described as a judge on the one hand, okay? But then there's a conflicting judge on the other hand, the godly soul, okay? Now, there's a lot here that, that a lot of questions that can be asked about this. I don't want any questions right now. I wanna finish the description um, and make sure we have a clear understanding of that. And then we can, like I said, go back and deal with some of the more complications that arise from this. Okay. So in the Bainini, the, the animal soul has no authority to get them to act, to speak, or even to indulge in thought, which is not in the service of Hashem. So what is the animal soul? The evil nature in the Bainini, however, is no more than, for example, a magistrate or judge who gives his opinion on a point of law, yet it is not necessarily a final decision to be implemented indeed, for there is another magistrate or judge who, contest with, who, who is contesting this opinion. It is therefore necessary to arbitrate between the two and the final verdict rests with the arbiter. Right? So you have the godly soul, the good inclination, the Yitzhatov, disagrees with the animal soul, the evil inclination. And so you're going to need some third party to come and make a final ruling between the two. Right? There is a standard method of, of, of a way a basin is done when there's a dispute. Um, there's a discussion whether this is ideal or not ideal, but this is a pretty standard method, which is called um, by an acronym, ZABLA. Um, um, which stands for ZABLA. This one chooses for him. The idea being if two people have a dispute, seeing as we do not have really a, a, a system of rabbinic courts in place um, that have real binding authority, um, and again, there's discussion even if you do, is this a better way to do it or not? Um, but it's certainly a legitimate way and it's more common way to when there's a serious dispute is you have one side picks one judge, the other side picks the other judge, and then the two judges, they pick a third judge. And now you have assembled the basin. Now, um, the idea being is that well, the person that you pick, and this is really careful, is that the idea is that you're not supposed to pick a judge who's, who's going to say he's going to side with you because if a person is going to for sure side with you, are they qualified to be a judge? No, there's still rules of who's qualified to be a judge or not. But the idea is you're picking a person who you're confident will understand and, and be sympathetic to your argument. In other words, not biased to rule in your favor, but you are confident, you as a, as a litigant are confident that they will actually hear your point of view. Okay. And then the other side also has confidence that there's someone in the court hearing their point of view, right? So both people have confidence that on this court, their arguments are genuinely being considered. 
Okay? And then those two people then are supposed to pick a third party that they both feel um, they can respect and work with. Now, this is independent of the idea there's a halacha that in, in, a, in a real basin, you are not allowed to sit on a basin with someone else you don't think is qualified. So, um, there, you know, it's like you, you just can't get your best friend saying, well, my best friend is going to be the judge. It's like the other sides, if they're higher, wanna, sorry, if they uh, choose a qualified diet, a qualified rabbinic judge, they're not going to sit with someone they feel is not qualified. So there's some negotiating involved to make this work. There's a similar dynamic happening here, right? You have one side is, is predisposed towards, one side is voicing the, the, the arguments of godliness, that's the Yetzir Tov. One side is voicing the arguments of unholiness, that's the Yetzir Hara. And you can't have a final ruling because you have these two conflicting opinions. You need somehow the tie to be broken. Now what the Alkabit is going to do in the next paragraph is going to describe what that looks like within the psychology of a person. Yeah, like how that actually plays out, what that looks like. Similarly, the evil nature states its opinion in the left part of the heart, which then ascends to the brain for contemplation. Immediately it is challenged by the second judge, the divine soul in the brain, extending into the right part of the heart, the abode of the good nature, the Yitzhak. The final verdict comes from the arbiter, the Holy and Blessed Behi, who comes to the aid of the good nature, as our sages say, if the Holy One, blessed be, did not help him, he could not overcome his evil inclination. And this help comes by the means of the glow radiated by the divine light which illuminates the divine soul, that it gained, mastery, that it gained the upper hand and mastery over the folly of the fool and the evil nature in the manner of ec- the excellence of light over darkness as stated above. So what happens is the person feels a desire for something which is unholy, something which is not in the service of God in the left side of the heart, that then enters the mind, person considers, perhaps I should engage in some ungodly behavior, right? And immediately what happens is the godly soul um, objects, right? And now the person has two different viewpoints, and then you need God's help to come along and resolve the issue, okay? And so the idea is that description captures the idea that you have two judges, um, and on the one hand, the animal soul, the evil inclination, is not have any authority to make the person do anything, unlike the Russian. And on the other hand, its voice is being heard. It is a judge in this court. It, is having, it, is, it has the opportunity to voice its opinion, unlike the tzaddik. Okay? And therefore, what follows from that is that because you have two judges, you can't make a resolution, you can't resolve the case. You need to have God come along and solve the problem. Okay, so have we solved, have, have we, have, do we have a clear, first off, what the sages said about Abedini? What did the sages say about Abedini? Two judges, not rulers. He said, no, the sages said there's two judges, right? And that's alluded to in a verse where it says that Hashem saves the, the destitute from the judges, okay? So they said that Abedini is ruled by the Benini has two judges, and they also give indication that what actually resolves between the judges is the assistance from above. Okay, what did we learn in chapter twelve about a Benini? He doesn't even consider that. That that that's going to help us understand why this is a description of Benini. What did we learn? We learned on the one hand, does a Benini ever sin? On the other hand, does a Benini have? Does his animal soul have the opportunity to express itself? In other words, they become aware of it. They can feel the desires, not behavior. Yeah, yes. Okay. Does that then explain why the sages would use the example of two judges? Because a judge has the opportunity to voice their opinion on the law, but the law is not decided by any one of the judges. The law is decided by the arbitration between the two conflicting judges, the third judge. Okay. And that's what happens in the Baini. They feel the desire on the left side of the heart. It enters the mind. They're aware of it. They consider it. On the other hand, the godly soul rejects that. Okay? The person, therefore, has two judges, and they are destitute. They are in a state where they, they have two conflicting opinions. What are they to do? Hashem comes along and breaks the tie, obviously in the favor of the godly soul, which is on the right side. The Yitzhah Tov, the good Ecclesiastes, is on the right side. Hence, the verse says, God stands on the right side to assist the destitute. He doesn't really ever favor the animal soul for some strange reason. Okay, yes? So God decides, and how can 
Okay. Well, who says he is called a Bainini by his own efforts? Isn't, isn't he well, like, he's not like, that you can choose. Can I rephrase your question to two different questions and then show how the two different questions? and answer one and explain why I'm not answering the other. Okay. There's the question of, given this description, it is not that the person's own um, power is making them the Baini. The power to make them a Baini, right, that they come down on the side of, the right side, the side of godliness, is because Hashem comes and breaks the tie. Without that, they would be, as the verse says, destitute. So, um, it sounds like Hashem is coming in to rescue them, and that doesn't sound like they're, they're, whatever is being accomplished is being accomplished under their own power, their own ability. Okay? And so, the, the question would therefore be twofold. One, is that accurate? And if so, is that a problem? Okay? Then there's a separate question, okay? which is, why doesn't Hashem do this for everybody? <laughs> In other words, if, Hashem, if being a Bainini involves Hashem coming to your rescue, right, then it sounds like whether or not you're a Bainini is just Hashem arbitrarily picking this person I'm going to rescue from the judges of their soul and the other person I will not. Okay. Um, but you see how those are two slightly different questions? One is saying, I'm, taking, I'm not asking why he does or why he doesn't do it. I'm asking, okay, is it correct that I'm understanding it that it's Hashem coming and rescuing the person? If that's the case, is it problematic that this being a baini is not the person's own efforts? Okay, that question we are going to address in chapter 15. The other question, why Hashem doesn't do this for everybody, I will address now. Because it's not actually literally addressed explicitly anywhere in Tanya. Um... But it is a very relevant question because if, if it really is up to Hashem to come and break the tie, then it seems rather capricious that Hashem is going to, you and you and you and you and you, I will swoop down and save you and you will become a Benini, and you and you and you and you, you are doomed to being a Russia. Nothing between Benin and Russia. So we're all Russians? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's cool. That's chill. Weren't you here when we learned about Russia in chapter 11? No. I don't think so. I missed the classic. Okay. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's just like, well, yeah, I'm not in the mood. Well, I am in the mood. Uh, oh. It's Tuesday. I guess I will make you a Bainini. Oh, never mind. It's, it's Purim Kata. I'm not in the mood anymore. It's like, like, well, like, like there's no rhyme. There's always just like Hashem just willy-nilly decides how. It's not a very good sense of how Hashem should engage with us, right? Yes? I don't know if this is the same question, but if you're saying that, the Bainini, like, only becomes a Bainini because of Hashem, well, don't we say that it's accessible to everybody to be a Bainini? Yes. So those two things somehow are... Well, so, so I, I specifically phrased these two questions because I think if we answer... This, this first question about, like, is it the Baini's own effort or is Hashem really rescuing them? If Hashem rescuing them, is that a problem? That we're going to deal with in chapter... We're, that, that, that notion that something should be your own effort, we're going to address more... That, that's the whole topic of chapter 15. I want to... Th- this question of why Hashem doesn't rescue everybody, I think if you understand that that it's not capricious, then all the other questions around that get resolved. Because very often we have questions because we're not understanding some basic point. Okay? So we'll start like this. There's a, first off, you should know that Hashem is a religious Jew. You should know that. He's very pious. He observes all the mitzvahs. I'm not joking. The Talmud asks the question, for instance, how does Hashem make it rain on Shabbos? Isn't it a problem of carrying the water into the public domain? 
I'm not kidding. The sages really discuss it. They give two answers. One is that you're allowed to carry in the public domain within your personal space, which for a human being is defined as four amos, which is about six feet. So it's a little bit more actually, but whatever. So if you are in the public domain and you're, you, you can pick an object up from over here and put it over there, that's not considered a violation of Shabbos within your personal space. Well, the verse does say, Hashem. Hashem says, I fill the heavens and the earth. So therefore all the universe is his personal space, hence he is not in violation of carrying. Also, the heavens and earth belong to Hashem, and if you have a private domain, you can carry as much as you want in a private domain. So being that the whole world belongs to Hashem, and he fills it, um, his moving the rain around is not considered a violation of Shabbos. Um, there's a discussion that Rebbe asks, how does Hashem destroy the temple, seeing as how one of the 613 mitzvahs is not to destroy the temple, or any part of the temple. It's a bit of a problem. And the halacha is that if one's intent is to rebuild the, the temple, you are allowed to destroy. In other words, destruction for the purpose of remodeling is permitted. Destruction for the purpose of destruction is forbidden. Thus meaning God's ultimate purpose in destroying the first and second temple was not really to punish us, but ultimately had to have been, his primary motivation was to upgrade it. Because otherwise he would be a violation. This is taken very seriously. Um, the sages say that Hashem wears tefillin, so the question is, what's written in his tefillin? Because in his tefillin, there's, there's, four parchment, there's four parchments with different sections of the Torah. And so the Talmud tells us what's written in Hashem's tefillin. And the Talmud objects that you mentioned five different sections of the Torah, and there's only four sections of tefillin, so you have to figure out which ones to drop to make Hashem in compliance with. How is Hashem a religious Jew if a Jew is someone who's serving God? What do you mean God is serving well, isn't a Jew a godly being who observes Torah mitzvahs? So is God a godly being? Yes or no? Does he do Torah mitzvahs? He's the original, right? Or the copy. Yes. This obviously requires us to understand things in not a very physical way, right? Hashem doesn't exactly have a skull that he puts his tefillin on in any physical sense. Okay. This becomes a major theme in Kabbalah. Um, it, of course, raises the question how God does the mitzvah of honoring his parents. <laughs> I have a theory about that, by the way, which I will share with you, but I have never seen it confirmed. I also haven't looked too hard because it's just on my list of things to eventually look into but never got around to, which is that there is a level of godliness referred to as the father and a level of godliness referred to as the mother, and there's a lower level of godliness called the Holy One, blessed be he, on the level of the spheres. And so maybe that's a reference to the interaction of these different levels of the spheres, but take that or leave that. It's my own personal theory. Um, there is a mitzvah in the Torah to assist someone in unburdening their donkey and reloading it. Now, these are actually two different mitzvahs. The unburdening is a mitzvah um, that incorporates not just helping the person, but the donkey. So the donkey is struggling under the load. You have to help them unburden it because on the other hand, reloading the donkey is just assisting the person. So the, the verse in the Torah says, Azev tazev ima, you shall assist with him. So from this, the sages derive that the halacha is that you're only required to assist the person if they are helping, if they're doing also. So if the person sits down on the side of the road and says, well, you load up the donkey because you're the one with the mitzvah, then you can tell them, have a nice day. But if they're willing to load the donkey, but they could use some help, then you have a mitzvah to help them. By the way, this mitzvah does not only apply to donkeys. If you see someone struggling carrying anything, if they say, well, you have a mitzvah, you carry it for me, you don't have to help them. But if, you see, but if they are trying to carry everything, then yes, you should offer to help them. It is a, one of the biblical mitzvahs. So we see that there's a notion of assisting, but helping and assisting only if the person is willing to do the work themselves willing to participate. If they step aside and wait for you to swoop them down and rescue them, then you have no mitzvah to help them. Okay? Can you help those who help themselves? No, that's not... Like, I, I specifically did not use that phrase because if you look up the origin of that phrase, you might be disturbed as where that comes from. Really? Yes. What? I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to, let's not okay. going to talk about it right now. What? <laughs> She's talking about what? What? I don't know. Anyway, moving on. No, 
This by the way, there's other. This is not true. For instance, the mitzvah tzedakah. Does tzedakah have this rule? That you only give tzedakah if the person is like putting in the effort in order to like make a living. No, no that does not rule. There's no, there's no such rule. Okay, it's not every mitzvah that involves assisting someone else. It's this specific mitzvah of helping a person who um, put the burden back on the donkey. Okay, well, the donkey represents our corporeal being, our physical being, because a chamor in Hebrew, donkey, is related to the word chomer, which means material. And the burden that our material existence bear is the observance of Torah and the mitzvahs. And if we are struggling under the burden of Torah and mitzvahs, will Hashem help us fulfill the Torah and mitzvahs? Will he help us with the battle against our evil inclination? And what's the answer? Yes. No. Only if, if you are doing the work, he will help. So if the, you're the donkey. You're both. <laughs> you are both. You know, it's the part of you that, re, that is bearing the burden and, res, and, and, and resisting torments of the donkey, right? But then there's the part of you trying to serve Hashem. So you're both resisting the torments, right? There's the animal soul, the godly soul, the good and the evil inclination, right? So if you are trying to laden your donkey with Torah and mitzvahs, but you're having a hard time, Hashem will assist. But if you say, look, Hashem, you want the Torah and mitzvahs on the donkey, you put them on the donkey, then Hashem says, well, I don't, I don't have any mitzvah to help you. Now, tzedakah is a different thing. Okay? For instance, um, the very fact that we exist is a tzedakah. Is a, okay? So I, I, I want to be very clear, the idea of just Helping only people because they're willing to put in the work is not always true. There's a specific myth about, about carrying things and, lo- and, and loading up a donkey, where that rule applies. And that parallels the idea that on the one hand, our physical existence, our animalistic existence, bears the burden of Torah mitzvahs and resents it. And the godly part of us is trying to get us to live a life of Torah mitzvahs. And if that's happening, but we're struggling, we're not fully successful, Hashem will assist, just like the person assisting the other person loading the donkey. But if the, we are going to sit on the side and just wait for Hashem to swoop down and magically um, make it be the case that we all of a sudden have this, how do you put it, the glow of the divine light so that we do the mitzvahs, well, then he's not going to do that. Given that, Is Hashem just capriciously swooping down and rescuing people and turning them into a bainani? No. It, right, now let's actually examine, if we examine what is described as happening psychologically, um, when he, he says, similarly, going back to that last paragraph, similarly the evil nature states its opinion in the left part of the heart, which thence ascends the brain for contemplation, immediately is challenged by the second judge, the divine soul and the brain extending to the right part of the heart, the abode of the good nature. Okay, does that describe our temptation to do the wrong thing? Like when you do the wrong thing, is that what happens? That you feel the desire in your left side of heart, you consider it, and then immediately your godly soul objects, extending into the right side of the heart. Is that, is that what happens? No, sometimes it doesn't even put the... No. It's there. Yeah, often it just feels like you desire to do something wrong, and then you go and do it. <laughs> What? Right. In other words, again, I want to just deal with a very simple level of this. Before Hashem comes and assists, the second judge, the divine soul in the brain, right, is objecting to the message in the godless soul, the the message that the the animal soul, the Yitzhar is giving, right? So the order is first the animal soul creates the, generates the ungodly desire, which then rises to the brain. Then it says the godly soul objects, and that extends into the heart, which I'm not going to focus on right now, extending to the heart. And only then, when the person has both judges voicing their opinion, does God come and help. Voicing their opinion in the heart? I don't want to care right now whether it's in the heart or the brain. Like, I'll get to that level of detail later. Just the fact you have both joy, vo- judges voicing their opinion. Now, in order for the second judge to voice his opinion, there has to be a delay between the desire to act and the actual acting. Okay? So, if a person does not gauge in a deliberate mode of living, will they ever get this divine assistance? Yes. 
Right? In other words, there's a, divine, there's a mode of living which is animalistic and there's a mode of living which is human. And the, the difference is that a human being lives a deliberate life and an animal lives a instinctual life. Okay? Now, this is nothing to do per se with being religious. In other words, from the perspective of Judaism, this is just the difference between a human being and an animal, although human beings, it's a bar expression of the Rambam, um, they don't have to be human beings. Some, some human beings are just animals in the physical form of a human being. Okay. So, what is the difference between a deliberate life and an instinctual life? Can we boil it down to one central thing and then maybe flesh it out from there? Intention. What? Intention. Intention. Okay. People who live in sexual lives don't have any intentions for anything? What's the difference between an instinct and an intention? You said something. You said something that is that is very um, useful, which is that an intention is an awareness of the, the end goal, right, and the steps needed to get there. I want to ignore the long term thing because I, I don't think that that's necessarily critical. In other words, you could be deliberate, intentional, and be very short term, either because you're just not that your time horizon is short. You know, you don't necessarily think in terms of millennia, you think things in terms of decades. And for someone who thinks in terms of millennia, decades are short. But for people who think in terms of weeks, decades are long, right? So it could be a time horizon. It could also be philosophically in principle, you believe, than focusing on shorter time horizons for whatever reason. So I don't want, I don't want to like deal with that. But yes, a deliberate person works from, okay, what am I trying to achieve? And then working backwards from there. An instinctual person is the opposite is that what I'm experiencing is driving my behavior, okay? So a instinctual person is headed towards something. In other sense, you can almost have a sense that the future is pulling them into the direct direction, whereas a instinctual person is being driven from what they've already experienced, okay? Also proactive versus passive. Yes, okay, there's also proactive versus passive distinction. Okay, I want to take both of those things, which are very true, and talk about just something much, much, much more fundamental, really, really, really fundamental, which enables this distinction to take place, which is pausing. In other words, if if you're, if you imagine like you have dominoes, right? You hit one domino, the next domino, the next domino, right? When one domino gets hit, it doesn't pause and say, hmm, I have just been hit. Should I fall down or not, right? There is not that pausing, that interruption, right? Okay. A deliberate life is a life where you step out of your life in an instant. And that stepping out, in other words, being in a certain sense beyond yourself, is what enables you to take action that is aimed towards an outcome rather than being driven by what you've experienced. And it gives you a sense of being a proactive, being an agent rather than being a passive thing, being influenced. Okay? And this is, you know, the very notion of stop and think, right? The stopping is very important. Now, like everything in life, if you take something and you overdo it... Right? I mean, you, you run into a problem. Right? If a person stops and overthinks everything, then they're, they're, not, they're too far out of life. I don't, right? That's an issue. Um, but a deliberate life means that a person treats behavior as something that needs to come after a stop, a pause. 
And that pause gives them the ability to consider the other side. What are they trying to achieve? What is the best course to take, right? That's what also makes people feel like they have control. They're proactive rather than just reacting. When you're being instinctual, right, you're like the domino. Something's happened, it's triggered certain experiences, those experiences are motivating, they drive you, and then you just, your behavior just follows from there. Is it possible to be a Bainani if a person is not liberate, living a deliberate life? No. But now what's important to understand is that from the perspective of the Torah, this is like pre chassidus this is like not in the perspective of the Torah, a person is different from an animal fundamentally because they are a deliberate creature rather than an instinctual creature. Is this what you were saying? So God doesn't swoop in. He first needs to see that the Benoni is doing this, like evaluating things. Right. So for, in other words, so, so now there, there's going to be, there, there's, so there's, there's kind of two elements. One is the level of being a human being. If you're a human being, that makes it possible for this, the other judge, to, the, the second judge, the godly soul, to voice the contrary opinion. And once both judges are voicing their opinion, then God will swoop in and provide assistance. But now, that decision to be deliberate, again, assuming, making some reference back to what we spoke about yesterday, assuming that you are a somewhat reasonably healthy adult, the decision to live life in a deliberate manner is whose? Your own, right? Obviously, if you are in a habit of it, it is easier to do. If you're out of habit, it is harder to do, but it is your decision. And this, the left side is one judge and the right side is the other judge. The animal soul, the yitzhar is one judge and then the godly soul objects. That really only reliably happens when a person is approaching life in a deliberate manner. And since being deliberate manner is up to you and it's God comes in to break the tie and the tie only occurs because you're in a deliberate manner, ultimately Hashem is only going to come in when you are taking some of that burden yourself by living life in a different manner such that both judges, both souls are able to voice their opinion. Which means, in a certain sense, why is it that a person is a Russia? Because not being conscious. That's right. And this, we're going to see this, the is going to say this clearly when we get to chapter 25. The is going to say that ultimately... The real key to being a Bani is to just live a conscious, deliberate life. Now, that presupposes a certain awareness of the godly soul, a certain education. Right? In other words, in other words, there, there's a lot of things that could prevent a person from being a Bani that are that are um, technical. Um, but the Altarbus point is at the end of the day, all the technical stuff you can fix. Right? And a person can develop a certain aware, a certain knowledge, a certain understanding, a certain worldview. They can access their soul, et cetera, et cetera. But the key to making all of that work is living with that deliberateness. When a person lives in a deliberate way, then we're going to have both souls will function as two conflicting judges. In other words, the animal soul's desires don't immediately translate into a behavior. It gives opportunity for the godly soul to object. And once the person is in that state, then there is definitely, then Hashem will come in and provide assistance. Okay? So is Hashem being capricious by helping some people and not others? No. And should we think of this as a kind of a miraculous thing that Hashem just like comes and swoops down and intervenes? Or should we think of this as something which is um, reasonable and rational. I don't mean to say it does not doesn't involve spirituality. What I mean to say is, I mean, think about it in any relationship, right? If you see somebody working hard to do something and you in any way care about them, will you provide assistance if you can, right? But if you see someone not taking something seriously, are you necessarily going to swoop down and solve it for them? No. Okay. So while it's true that the actual being a Bainani coming down always when it comes to the actual behavior of thought, speech, and action, is always going to be because of this divine assistance. That divine assistance is in some sense being earned by the person living life in such a way that you can say about them in, in, in an authentic way, their life is reflected by the fact that both souls are voicing their opinion. The Russia's life is not really reflects that. The Russia can just feel the animal soul and then move right to action. 
because they're living in a very instinctual, animalistic way. Yes? So what happens, and I mean, I've experienced this, like I've asked, you know, I, I think I want to do the not good thing, and then want to do the good thing, and I pause, and sometimes, you know, I'll ask for help for Hashem, and mm-hmm. sometimes I'll go that way, but sometimes I'll still go that way. You really want an answer? Do I really want an answer? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, no, that's not an answer. She's asking why she's a Russian. No, just because that's just, okay. No, 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 no. But what no. about the Hashem being the one to, to swim? Right, right, okay. So it's so, not just one time, it's over time. No, so, so, so no, 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 no. So, so there's, there's, there's two answers to this. I'm going to give you the simple answer first. Um, and then, depending on how much time we have, I might talk about the second answer. Because um, someone pointed out, like, like, where is the other judge? Is in the brain? Is in the heart? There's some more complications here. But before that, there is, there is something that I think is not directly is not directly addressed in Tanya. Is more of like oral Torah kind of stuff. But I think is important to know, which is as follows: We have the ability to do stuff in such a way where we guarantee our own failure. And not only do we have that ability, we engage in that activity. We self-sabotage, um, which is a choice. Okay. So, you can, for instance, just, I, was, I was in Shabbaton, the men's program on Shabbos. And it was mighty Shabbos, and we're packing up, and my, my, my children are wonderful, it was me and my three oldest boys, and my children are wonderful. They did all the you know, packing and putting things together. They were just very responsible. Um, but they're also kids. And one of them didn't know where he left something. So I said, okay, well, right now we're eating lava malka. Like, go look for it. If you, know, you don't find it, then I'll come help you look for it. And he was all frustrated. Like, yeah, that's so right. like, 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 it's like It's like somehow like a, a biblical-scale miracle occurred that this went missing. Because, like, how could it be? Okay. Um, and I said, well, let's go look for it. And he looks at King. He said, came back. It's not anywhere. I said, as he looked, he said, yes, I looked and it's not anywhere. Um, so I told him, yeah, like, look, you have a choice. You can either calm down and, and go step by step looking around for it, or you can wait and I'll come look for it later. But it's, I mean, you clearly didn't look, I mean, it's, it's clearly like, it didn't have legs and walk, pick up and walk away. Like, clearly. It's somewhere where you left it, right? I mean, possibly someone moved it to a reasonable location, but again, it's not whatever it was. So, um, he, I, gave, I gave him some tips for calming down. He calmed down. Five minutes later, he comes back. He'd found it. So I asked him, how did you find it? He says, I looked for it. I said, so why did you find it the first time? He says, because the first time I was frustrated and agitated. And so I said, so you didn't look? He says, look, I like sort of looked. I was, I was, I was, like, I was, lo- I was looking, but I was frustrated, so I wasn't really looking. Right. In other words, now, uh, whereas the second time, he's like, like, I was calmed down, so I actually looked and I actually looked and I found it. Okay. Now the conversation ended there. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not that old. But let's just go one le- further level. If he's frustrated and he's like looking, but he's not really looking, then what's the motivation for that? Right, or you could actually go before even that. There, there's, there's, there's also just when we are frustrated about something, do we like to feel justified about being frustrated? Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Self justification is a very powerful motivator. If you don't know where something is and you haven't looked, you're not really justified in being frustrated that you don't know where it is. <laughs> but if you have looked, then you are justified in your frustration. Plus then your father can swoop in and save you. Um, we do things like that. We engage in activities in a very half-hearted, superficial way to feel like, look, I tried, it didn't work. So now I'm blameless the fact that it stays that way. And everything in Tanya is going to be subject to that problem is that any advice the Alter will give you, any technique, any description of how it works, you can do it in a superficial way such that it will not work. That anything in Tanya is going to ultimately require a person to be invested in it. And so when a person is not invested, 
it won't work. And especially when the underlying reason for the non-investment is because on some level, there, this is kind of to create the rationalization to themselves that, well, I tried and doesn't work, so now I can like not feel guilty that I'm stuck this way. And this is, this is a common thing. So we're saying, look, I can't be a bainani because I tried and it didn't work. And the real answer is that you didn't try, you just did enough to convince yourself that you tried. So I don't want to say this about you personally, but it is a very common thing. That yes, a person will want to do the wrong thing. The person knows it's wrong. The person stops and makes a half-hearted attempt to be deliberate without ever really truly intending to overcome the, the desire. And then it doesn't work. And then they can feel like, well, see, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 you know, we're, not, we're not angels. What do you want from me? And, and that becomes a reinforcing pattern. And that is not what the altar was describing. In other words, faking being deliberate um, to oneself is not really being deliberate. Because the key element of really being deliberate is is that you genuinely are not pre-committed to that course of action. If you still feel that you're pre-committed to the course of action, then it's more about getting rid of the Jewish guilt so you can sin you know, guilt-free. I tried and God didn't come and help me. Um, and what the Alter Rebbe is describing, what we're saying is that no, you know, just, like, just like a person um, who's judging a, a court case should not be predisposed really to ruling in anyone's favor, Right? If you're going to really pause and be deliberate, you should not be predisposed to a particular course of action. You should really say, like, look, I, just because I feel this way, I'm not going to do it unless it really conforms to like, what's important to me. And if a person hasn't had that level of, I don't know if you call it self-transcendence or personal honesty or whatever it is, the thoughts going through their head are really irrelevant. In fact, they may be even counterproductive because they're helping build a, a lie that they're really doing it when they're not. Justified. Right. Yeah. And this is a common problem. Um, and there's no solution to this other than to choose to be brutally honest with yourself. There's no workaround for this. And that's why actually Hasidim have treated people who are dishonest with themselves as the lowest of the low. Um, that it is a sinner who is a sinner is not nearly as bad as someone who is dishonest with themselves. Because a person who is dishonest with themselves um, is hopeless. The, 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 the term for this is a chitzen. A chitzen means a superficial person. Now, sometimes that means they're just doing things for show, but the deeper level is that, is that they, there, there's deep dishonesty in how they approach everything with themselves. So there's an old story Chassidim used to say to illustrate what a chitzen is which is that there was once a chassid on Tisha B'av standing, sitting next to an old man, and the old man is crying. The old man was not a chassid. So he asked the old man, why are you crying? He says, well, it's Tisha B'av, crying over the base of Migdash, it's destroyed. So chassid, what, what are you in the base of Migdash? Like, what are you, what, what connection do you have to the base of Migdash that is bringing you to tears? I mean, like, it's, it's a horrible tragedy, but like, you're not, it's not like you saw its destruction. It's not like you have that kind of spiritual sensitivity. Why is it bringing you to tears? And so the man said, well, it says in the Talmud that since the day the temple was destroyed, the taste of meat was taken out of the meat and put into the bones. And so I can't, you know, now that the temple's destroyed, I can't really enjoy meat. And so the chassid tells, well, well, then why don't you just gnaw at the bones? I crack the bones and gnaw at the bones. And the old man says, I did that. But now I'm old and I don't have teeth anymore. So the chassid says, just cry about your teeth. Like it's nothing to do with the temple. <laughs> like, this, like levels upon levels of not, like you want your meat to taste good. In our day and age, what tastes good is the bones more than the meat. Okay, so when you were younger, you could gnaw on the bones. I can't gnaw the bones. You're upset. You can't gnaw on the bones. So Christ, the temple's nothing to do. The temple's not an issue. But and I think is that the person genuinely convinced. What do you mean? I'm crying at the temple because it's not, it bothers me. And that kind of self deceit where a person's not like just doing things for show for others, but they're doing, everything, everything is built on a, on, a, on a narrative and on a kind of self-propaganda. Whenever you do anything from that place, it will never work, especially things like it's describing in Tanya. Um, the, the previous Rebbe, uh, the, the, fifth, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, actually in one of his Chik discourses says that this is like a disease that if you have this, it's fatal. Um, and he gives actually a course of treatment for it. 
Um, the first thing is that you shouldn't let anything bother you other than the fact that you're not honest with yourself. He says, because if anything else bothers you, it's only bothering you in this self-deceiving kind of way. It's like, I'm really bothered that I sin. No, you're not really bothered you sin. You're bothered, you're, 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 you're bothered that you're not perfect, but you don't want to admit that it's an ego thing, so you make it about, about your religiosity. Like, the, drop any sort of self-criticism other than this one issue. That's what he says. Is the, the only problem is that I'm not honest with myself. The problem is that even that, the person's not going to be honest with himself about. So he says, the second thing is you have to have a close friend who you are willing to be perfectly honest with without holding anything back. And step three is you have to get in the practice of learning things that are detailed and being rigorous about them, not just like generalizing. Get in the habit of when you learn Torah, being very precise. What do you know? What do you not know? Don't engage. So he says if a person follows that program, they will slowly get out of the problem of self-deceit. But... But that is all personal choice, and it's not comfortable, and it's not easy. And, but you're right. So now, and, and everything in Judaism works to degrees. In other words, you know, the, you know, it's not like you have to master it 100%. Um, so going back to what you're saying is that I don't want to say about you particularly, individually, but, but very often people will say, like, yeah, I wanted to do the wrong thing, and I felt it, and I thought about how it was wrong, and I asked Hashem for help, and da 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 and in the end, I did it anyway. And... The simple answer to that is, on some level, you had already intended to do it already from the beginning, and you weren't honest with yourself about that, and that was all just a way to assuage the guilt that I tried, and look, it's not my fault. What about deeper things that like, are, like, you can't really, like, in your thoughts? Because we're, remember, we're talking about, we're talking about behaviors. Okay. Actions we take, words we say, and thoughts we continue to choose to think about. We're not talking about things that occur to our because remember, we already said that the Bainini is not free of that, right? The fact that something occurs is not the issue. Okay. There is a deeper answer, which has to do with the mind and the heart, but we'll save that for another time. There's a lot in this, these paragraphs which needs to be elaborated on, but that's the basic flow of the idea. That given what we've learned, that a Bainini is somebody who, on the one hand, has complete all their thought, speech, and action, willful thought, is all in alignment with holiness, and on the other hand, they still experience the desires and passions of the animal soul. That explains why the sages would say that the Bainis experiences the animal soul as one judge out of many. A judge has the ability to, uh, to voice their opinion, but the final ruling isn't the judges, it's the arbiter between the differing viewpoints. Okay? And, that's, and that ultimately, that you experience your godly animal soul in that way is something that a person has to do for themselves and when you do that, Hashem will come and rule on the favor of the godly soul. Make sense? Question? That, that live a deliberate life so that we experience both souls as judges. Right? That, as he described it, the godly soul objects to the animal soul, not just we're play acting at it. And when that happens, when we have both souls being full fledged judges, then Guaranteed Hashem will assist. Okay. Now, there's a, again, there's a lot here. Next week, we're going to start elaborating on some of the details here um, and also comparing and contrasting what we've seen to the description of the Bainini in chapter 12. Okay. Tomorrow's questions and answers, so please have questions. Otherwise, we'll sit in awkward silence. I'll ask you what your questions are in life. I don't have any. I was being facetious. People who don't have questions are boring. I have a, just a clarifying question. You had said that to avoid self-deception, you start with not having any self-criticism beyond I'm dishonest with myself. The third thing is studying Torah in a way that you are being very rigorous about understanding things very precisely. Um, just give you an example. I'm, like, I'm learning Gemara with, with my, my Gemara class. And we're learning about the laws about putting things back on the stove on Shabbos, before Shabbos. Very complicated. And so right now we're dealing with, with about if, if something is hot, boiling hot, does that change the law or does not change the law? That was the issue we're dealing with. And so one of the Bachram asked the question is like, well, what if I move it from one stove to another stove? And so I told him, I don't know. I do know, but I don't know. 
says, well, well why not? He says, because right now, what is exactly the issue we're dealing with? If the heat of the food changes the law. Have we discussed moving from one stove to another stove? Or we're talking just putting it back on the same stove? Like, be very precise. Exactly what are we dealing with? Exactly what are we not dealing with? And the, 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 um, the, what, what happens is that you're really forced to be very, very honest about the, the scope of your own ignorance. Right? To be very, like, what, you know, what exactly is this? What isn't it? Um, and when a person gets in the habit of, of thinking in that way, plus they're having that kind of vulnerable honesty, plus the only issue about themselves or themselves bother them is this, then they start to relate to themselves in a much more honest way. That is his treatment. Specifically, rigorous about Torah or rigorous? About well, he says it about Torah, which you know is what a Jew should be spending their mental energy focused on, right? Um, that's what he says. Wait, so the person who was crying over the temple and the meat was actually good because he was being honest with himself? No, he wasn't no, being honest. So he, was very, he was very so to help himself. First off, he said he's crying about the temple. He wasn't. Crying. The temple doesn't bother him at all. What bothers him is the meat, and the meat issue doesn't really bother him because he could eat, he could gnaw the bones. Right? His one problem was he could no longer know their bones because he didn't have teeth. So it's a cry that you don't have teeth. 